and welcome to the Nerdy Apologist Podcast. On this week's episode, we sit down and have a conversation with Dr. K. Scott Oliphant. Dr. Oliphant is a professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He is also an expert on Cornelius Van Til, who is often called the father of presuppositional apologetics, or as Dr. Oliphant calls it, covenantal apologetics. Dr. Oliphant explains this particular branch of apologetics and how we can use it when we have conversations with our unbelieving friends and family. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Oliphant, thank you again for uh, joining us. And uh, for those who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you give just a little bit of a, a background on on who you are and, and what you do and all of that good stuff? Sure. Um, I uh, am originally from Texas, born and raised there, and about 30 years ago moved uh, up to uh, Pennsylvania to Westminster Theological Seminary. I've been here since 1991, and uh, I teach uh, apologetics and some systematic theology uh, here at Westminster. That's wonderful. Um, so the main reason that I wanted to have you on uh, is because I wanted you to be able to highlight a branch of apologetics that I feel often does not get enough uh, attention. Um, it's a branch of apologetics that has really helped me uh, in trying to reach unbelievers, and it's uh, presuppositional apologetics. But before we get to that, uh, I do want to know, what drew you specifically to apologetics? Was it uh, something that you've always been interested in, or did something, um, did someone, you know, come into your life and introduce you to this particular topic, or how did that come about? Yeah, well, that's a good. There's a, there's a long story and a short story, so I'll try to keep it brief, but um, I was... When I was converted, uh, I was raised Roman Catholic and converted to Christianity uh, latter part of high school. And um, after high school, I got involved in a ministry called Young Life, which is an outreach uh, ministry to uh, high school kids. And while I was working in Young Life, I was also um, taking uh, some philosophy courses at a local university. And it happens that the philosophy professor there was um, a Christian man. So he and I um, struck up a relationship and began talking. He's the first man I've met um, who was a thinking Christian because I hadn't been a Christian for very long. And it just so happened there were a lot of um, issues that he was addressing in his class that also um, helped me think through what Christianity is and, and um, why I believe what I believe. So that kind of got the ball rolling, uh, me thinking about um, the relationship of philosophy generally to Christianity and more specifically, um, what are the issues involved in Christianity when I claim to be a believer? What's my foundation? What's my ground? Um, how do I think about metaphysics? You know, that was another thing that I was learning back then. So all those things kind of uh, merged together, um, and that's what got me going uh, initially in the area of apologetics. He, he actually offered a course. This was a secular university, but he offered a course uh, that consisted of uh, reading Francis Schaeffer's books and watching one of his film series. And um, that was just all fascinating to me as, as a new Christian, became excited about it and um, latched on and, and haven't let go since. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, so again, I do want to talk to you about presuppositional apologetics. And I feel like for a lot of people, that just it sounds like two big old words kind of smashed together. 
Um, and so I was wondering if you could just kind of uh, unpack that entire phrase and just kind of give a, a maybe a bird's eye view of what presuppositional apologetics actually is. Yeah, thanks. Um, I I don't like the term, and um, I've I've made that clear in some things I've written. I think it was useful um, at the time when when uh, things were were um, being discussed in at the level of apologetics. Um, so just a little bit of historical interest here, maybe um, the the uh, the method is is more closely associated with uh, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, who was the original professor of apologetics here at Westminster. And when Dr. Van Til came to Westminster, one of his tasks that he was given by Dr. Machen, who started our, or Mr. Machen, who started our seminary, was um, to teach apologetics uh, for those who would be in pastoral ministry. So uh, Van Til had been to uh, to Calvin College, he'd been to uh, Princeton Seminary, and he'd um, earned his PhD at Princeton University in philosophy. And when he came to Westminster and began to teach, um, one of his goals was to teach apologetics in a way that would be uh, consistent with our Reformed theology. And what he saw at Princeton Seminary uh, were some inconsistencies, and he wanted to try to um, work through those inconsistencies and, and make apologetics more consistent. As he began to develop that and to work through that, uh, there were people who he interacted with uh, in print and uh, personally, and one of the interactions in print um, called uh, what he was doing presuppositionalism. This was in the in the late 40s, 1940s, and um, that that name just kind of stuck. Um, so the point is, it was a name that was kind of put onto what um, Van Til was attempting to do. It stuck. Um, he he took it. Um, and I, I think it's an unfortunate name for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not really clear uh, what is meant by presuppositions. You know, that's a fairly vague term. It can mean uh, axioms or, or principles or um, uh, just things that we, that we believe before we believe anything else or prior to something else we believe. So it's a, it's a vague term. It's an ambiguous term. It can go a number of different directions. And the second reason I think it's not that useful is that it tends to um, give credence to the fact that apologetics is first and foremost a philosophical discipline. And it really isn't. Um, apologetics has had to deal with um, philosophical ideas because some of the objections, many of the objections against Christianity have come from philosophy, and certainly uh, some of the most articulate objections against Christianity have come from philosophy. So when that happens, uh, apologists want to try to answer philosophers in their own terms and, and with their own language, and so it, it, um, it can become philosophical if needed. But um, the, the, the gist of Van Til's um, uh, what he wanted to do, his his whole impetus, and, and what drove him in his um, development of of apologetics was the centrality of the gospel and the way in which the gospel can be defended and ought to be defended within the context of Reformed theology. So uh, I, I recognize, of course, um, that not everyone is Reformed in their theology and. And if they're not, uh, then I think another apologetic approach is um, is um, 
the, the way someone ought to go. But if, if one's uh, theology is reformed, then I think the approach that Van Til was laying out is, is the best approach um, to fit the theology that we, that we all affirm. So when, when it was called presuppositionalism, um, what was meant by that is um, Van Til's uh, fairly constant affirmation that as Christians, when we begin to defend the Christian faith with whomever, and, and along with that, he's including evangelism as well. So anytime we're concerned to communicate the gospel in a way that's hopefully persuasive and to defend the truth of the gospel, whenever we do that, we want to make clear in our own minds, and that's an important point, doesn't mean we have to say this uh, immediately to everyone to whom we speak, but we want to make clear in our own minds um, that we can only defend what we have Number one, because God is who he says he is. And number two, because God has spoken in his word. So we stand on those two basic foundations in our defense of Christianity and in our communication of the gospel. And so in that sense, what Van Til was trying to help us understand is that those things need to be presupposed in our apologetic method. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's the first thing we say. It doesn't mean it's the only thing that counts when we're talking to people, because obviously our experiences count and the way in which we navigate the world, those things count in our discussion. We, we want to bring those things in. Um, but his, his, um, his overwhelming emphasis was let's make clear where we stand as Christians when we're defending the faith. The way he put it is we need to be more and more epistemologically self-conscious. And again, that's kind of a philosophical way of saying let's make sure we know what we know and why we know it when we're defending the Christian faith. So, so that's the way he thought about presuppositions. And I think it's unfortunate that it's been called presuppositionalism. The, the word I've used, and, and there are other, other words, maybe better words, but the word I've used is covenantal. I think the approach is a covenantal approach because it recognizes who God is and that God has entered into a relationship uh, with his people and uh, specifically and, and um, with his creation more generally. One thing that you mentioned is uh, that pre or uh, I'll use the covenantal apologetics from now. You, you fixed me on that one. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned that covenantal apologetics is a little bit, more reformed. Uh, and so if you are from a different uh, theological background or, or leaning, you may want to use something else. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that's one of the things that people often see when they first start looking into this particular branch of apologetics is that it's usually reformed uh, individuals who are uh, using this particular method. Yeah, thanks. And, and, it, and it should be. I think one of the... Um, so a couple of things I would say on that. Number one... Um, I think most people who who study um, church history uh, recognize that uh, one of the deficiencies, and I'm speaking generally here, so obviously there are exceptions to this, but one of the deficiencies during the medieval period um, was that there was a, a weak view of sin. And that weak view, you know, in the Roman Catholic tradition goes all the way back to the, the problems they saw in creation with the the donum super additum, that is something else needed uh, even before the fall. 
uh, for man uh, in the garden. Um, so, so there, there, there was a view of sin um, that was not as robust and strong as Scripture uh, indicates it ought to be. So, if if that's the case, and let's just say for argument's sake it is the case, then um, it means that uh, the people to whom we speak in our proclamation of the gospel, uh, in our defense of Christianity, it means that those people are sick uh, because of sin, um, but they're not dead in their trespasses and sins. And and if they're only sick, it means that there are uh, aspects of uh, who they are as human beings um, that are not um, directly affected by sin. And, and the way it's um, typically understood in some of the medieval tradition is that the rational faculty, the way that we think, is um, pretty much intact in significant areas and therefore not, not directly fect, affected by our depravity. When, uh, when the Reformation came along and began to uh, re-emphasize things that had been emphasized in the church but had been lost, uh, one of the aspects of, of that emphasis was our total depravity, um, as, as I say, that, you know, as Paul puts it, we're, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not just sick. It's not just that um, we're, we're about to drown in the, in the ocean and somebody needs to throw us a life raft so that we can grab it. We don't have the ability to grab it because we're not um, just about to drown. We're, we're dead at the bottom of the ocean and, and decaying at the bottom of the ocean, and, and our salvation will take uh, nothing less than uh, total regeneration by, by the Holy Spirit. So um, if, you're, if your understanding of sin is one of total depravity, which means uh, not that we're as bad as we can be, but it means uh, every aspect of our character is radically affected by sin, um, then you recognize that um, the only way in which uh, a person is going to come around, as it were, or understand the, the truth of Christianity is through the work of the Holy Spirit who um, works by and with the truth of God's word to, to change people's hearts and lives. Um, so you're not appealing then to a kind of um, mutual understanding of rationality between me and the unbeliever uh, because the unbeliever's rationality is designed by virtue of the depravity uh, always and everywhere um, to take what I say and um, to twist it in a way that it's not going to be conducive to the truth of God. Um, and that's just what we do. That's what I did. That's what we all do um, apart from regeneration. So there's that aspect of the weakness of sin during the, during the medieval uh, period. The, the other thing um, that I think is important for us to recognize <laughs> is that um, Calvin helped us understand again and this wasn't brand new in the history of the church either but it'd been lost but as calvin's writing his institutes and his is framing out the topics of his institutes uh, according to the topics of paul's epistle to the romans calvin begins then with um the knowledge of god the creator and he um is um i think adamant in his insistence that what paul's teaching us in romans chapter one uh, as Paul puts it, is that every person, by virtue of being a person, that is being in the image of God, and by virtue of God's uh, revealing activity, every person actually knows God and suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. 
So part of what it means in a reform context, again, uh, following Calvin, is that the people to whom we speak, anyone who is apart from Christ, nevertheless, as Paul puts it, is without excuse. And they're without excuse not because they've uh, done what they need to do intellectually, but they're without excuse because God has made himself known. He's made sure that people who are in his image and who are required to image his character, that they actually know him. And yet in that knowledge, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So those, those are at least two um, significant uh, aspects of Reformed theology uh, that Van Til wanted to, to, to press home to us and to help us um, think through those aspects in light of what it means to defend Christianity. Hmm. Uh, also, reading Van Til a little bit, he also talks about, and, and I think this is what you're talking about, is the, the problem with this idea of intellectual, um, this, uh, intellectual neutrality. Um, and uh, and appealing to that, and uh, and I've heard other people who are a little bit more critical on covenantal apologetics say, well, you see, Paul in Acts when he's uh, speaking in Athens, using that uh, intellectual neutrality when he is uh, quoting from Zeus and the other Greek poets, and um, so how would you answer that particular argument of of well, you see Paul using this appeal to this intellectual neutrality. Yeah, um, great. Uh, I think the best way to think about that is um, I, I've, I've got some, um, I've done some work on this in the book Covenantal Apologetics. There's a chapter there on persuasion, um, and I'm currently writing on on that right now. Um, and, and I think the best way to think about what Paul's doing is is uh, is in the area of persuasion. So let's just let's just take. Um, uh, the Paul, Paul's quotations there from the Greeks, um, probably Epimenides and, and Eratus. Uh, he says, um, at, when he's speaking in Athens, uh, as even some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. Now that's a quote um, that he knows his audience is familiar with, at least most of them, if not all of them, be familiar with it. And so the question I guess we can ask, uh, and this is one way to think about it, I ask my students this in class. I say, okay, uh, the quotation, in him we live and move and exist, is that quotation true or false? And, um, you know, I get some stares in class, and, and I get I get both answers. Uh, well, it's true. No, wait a minute. It's it's false. And and the reason I ask it that way is so that, so that we'll uh, recognize the ambiguity in the statement itself. When, when the, when the uh, statement was written, in him we live and move and exist, as you rightly put it, the him there, in him, was referring to Zeus. Now, if the him refers to Zeus, the statement is false. Um, Paul has already described in, in, at the Areopagus who God is, um, what he's like. He's talked about his aseity. He's talked about his sovereignty, his lordship over all creation. And then what he does is he takes a statement that's false, that the Greeks have made, and he makes it a true statement because he changes the referent. The referent now is the true God of whom Paul has spoken at the Areopagus. So um, there's no neutrality in the statement, in him we live and move and exist. It's, it's actually what, what our Reformed forebears called um, false theology. It's theologizing, but it's theologizing with a false conclusion, which is the whole reason Paul's spirit was moved in Athens, as Luke tells us about in Acts 17, 
was because of the idolatry there. And Paul recognized that I, that idolatry is not a product of ignorance. It's a product of the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. So what Paul's doing is he's taking something that the Greeks already know. In him we live and move and exist, a statement like that. And he's using that persuasively but redefining it Christianly in order to persuade them. That is to bring them into his own argument. So I don't think we should see that um, in the way, for example, Aquinas sees it as just um, Paul agreeing with the Greeks here. Not at all. Of course he's not agreeing with the Greeks. He's redefining what they've said because he knows that very statement, in him we live and move and exist, referring to Zeus, that statement is itself a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Another thing that I've really appreciated in, and it, it makes me actually really love covenantal apologetics even more uh, is the fact that it, it never wavers on the fact that God does exist. And one of the, I guess, personally troubling trends I, I feel like is kind of cropping up more and more in other, um, I guess, prominent apologists uh, is is this language of, well, God probably exists or he is the most probable explanation. And uh, and different things like that. I was wondering if you could actually just touch on that really quickly about um, uh, maybe other apologists, maybe philosophizing things too much or wanting to stick with the philosophical language a little too much, especially when it comes to saying that God uh, is the most probable explanation. Yeah, thanks. I, that's that's a really good way to, to, to think about it. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to see that um, let, let's say we, we, we think, um, this is not me, but let's say there's someone out there, and there are those who think that Thomas Aquinas' view is, is the proper view. Um, Thomas himself was clear about the fact that um, his, his proofs for the existence of God, while he called them demonstrations, he was clear about the fact that they, they couldn't move beyond probability. Now, some people say, um, you know, Thomas uh, thought that those uh, proofs were certain. There was there were things in those proofs that he thought were certain, such that um, every effect must have a cause. Um, that's that's true by by definition. But the conclusions themselves cannot pass beyond probability for the very reason that any evidential proof, when we're talking about empirical evidence. Um, can only be probable. Even even if it's highly probable, um, it it's going to lack certainty um, because um, evidence uh, itself, uh, in, in, in this kind of context, this kind of evidence uh, cannot provide certainty. Um, so, for example, when you, when you think about, um, let's just uh, take it out of this context for a second, when you think about the reliability of the New Testament and you and you see um, statistics about the number of manuscripts that are available, over 5,600 um, from, uh, from the New Testament, and you compare that to the next greatest set of manuscripts available, 600-some uh, from that period of time, and you say, see, the evidence um, is overwhelming. Well, that is, you know, that's a good point to make if you're, if you're talking in those particular categories. But again, we have to recognize um, it's, it's fraught with probability because um, maybe there'll be something discovered that's going to bump up, um, you know, the, the uh, 
evidence from 600 to to uh, to 16,000, and then this you know, massive evidence of another uh, scenario, and now the New Testament doesn't look as evidential after all. So the point is, the the evidences themselves can be useful. You don't discount those. You don't say that they mean nothing. Um, but if you're if you're giving the evidential argument uh, on the basis of the probability of the existence of God, then as Van Til liked to say, um, you're you're really doing an injustice to the way in which um, God wants us to speak about Him. We we don't want to tell unbelievers and and people that we're talking to that that our God probably exists. Uh, we we want to try to get them to understand that He certainly exists, and that a, apart from Him. Uh, there could be no truth at all. Uh, so uh, probability should not, in that sense, should not be um, our, our concluding um, uh, uh, statement to, to those who are outside of Christ. Um, because any probability, even if it's 0.99% probable that God exists, and someone could walk away and say, well, my unbelief then still has a, a, a 0.01 chance. And and that's not good. That's not what we want. Um, that's not what we want unbelievers to know. And I, and I think, again, that's that's Van Til's point about being epistemologically self-conscious. We don't think that um, that Christ probably rose from the dead. Um, we think that he absolutely, certainly rose from the dead. I remember reading an apologist. This was over thirty years ago now, but I was uh, reading an apologist um, doing some work on this. Talking about the evidences for the resurrection, and he said um, that the possibility that someone will find um, the tomb uh, that is not empty—in other words, we, we talk about the empty tomb—the possibility that someone would find the tomb not empty, he said, is virtually nil. Now, see, um, the fact that he says virtually nil means that he has to admit that there's a possibility it could be found, but it's. It's not very probable at all. Well, you know, that doesn't square with the way Paul uh, talks about the resurrection for, resurrection, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Christ is not raised and our faith is in vain. So our faith is not just most probably not in vain, but our, our faith is not in vain because Christ has been raised. So I think, again, we've got to, we've got to stand on the, uh, the certainty of Scripture and, and not on um, evidences that we're able to compile or think about as as our foundation. Now, again, we don't negate the evidence, but uh, the evidence is not our foundational commitment. Mm, yeah, amen. <laughs> um, so I want to start moving on to the practical, but uh, before that, I think one of the critiques um, that may keep people from jumping into uh, covenantal apologetics um, was was kind of laid out by you know R.C. Sproul and, and uh, Gerstner in their book Classical Apologetics and their I think it seemed like their key hang-up was that they believed uh, covenantal apologetics to be circular reasoning uh, so I was wondering how or, or what your response to that critique uh, is yeah um let me just preface all this by um, uh, saying how much I greatly uh, appreciated R.C.'s ministry and mm. um, became a friend uh, with him and was uh, so appreciative of, of everything that he did and and also was able to speak um, with Dr. Gerstner about some of these things um, before he passed. So so these are men that I respect and appreciate. And so what we're talking about here is, is a little bit of a family squabble. Um, <laughs> 
and it's it's people within the family. But um, yeah, but again, the the issue of circularity is a is a peculiar one. Um, I should say that um, there's some some good material out there. Um, John Owen, for example, uh, was accused of the same thing by Roman Catholic theologians, interestingly, because hmm. of his view of, of the uh, supremacy of Scripture. And uh, Owen goes uh, into um, a discussion. I can't repeat it for you here, but um, I'm sorry to do this. I know this sounds self-serving, but just because I can't do it right here, uh, there's a new book out called Debating Christian Religious Epistemology. Hmm. Debating Christian Religious Epistemology. And I have a chapter in there where I spell this out uh, uh, in, in a bit more detail. Um, but Owen, Owen says, uh, number one, um, uh, circularity uh, can be understood in, in various ways. And, and he makes the argument that because we have the objective reality of the Spirit's work as he testifies of the authority of Scripture, it's not viciously cir circular in a certain way. And then he goes on to say, by the way, that the papists, as he calls them, the, the Roman Catholics, he says they are the ones who are engaging in circular reasoning. And then he shows exactly how they're doing that by way of their understanding of the authority of the church. The, the, the point that Owen is making is, and he doesn't say it quite this way, but his point is uh, everybody who has a, a foundation for knowledge is of necessity engaging in some kind of circularity. Now there there are um, there are circularities that the logicians uh, call um, invalid uh, in in informal logic and things like that, and that's that's certainly the case. But it doesn't mean that uh, all reasoning uh, that uh, reflects back onto its foundation is invalid or. Uh, always viciously circular. That's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, um, when we think about foundations, as Ben Till liked to point out, everybody's reasoning is somewhat circular because you always start somewhere, and wherever you conclude has to be consistent, utterly consistent, with where you began. So in that sense, um, you're, you're back into a circle again. Uh, so I think it's important to see that, um, you know, that, that, that the circle of Christianity um, is a circle that really includes um, everything in the world and has its foundation in in uh, in God Himself and in what He has spoken. Uh, so in in that way, it's not a vicious circle. It's a circle that includes the reality of what God has done uh, through all of creation. So moving into the, the other thing, can, can I say just one more thing? Oh, absolutely, on this? yeah. Um, yeah, just since you brought it up, uh, one of the interesting things um, about the, the book um, Classical Apologetic, which is another term I don't like. I mean, I understand what they're trying to do there, but, uh, you know, they're bringing in Aquinas and, and, and Anselm and Edwards, and, and Anselm disagreed with Aquinas. And so maybe they're just trying to say, here are some apologetic approaches in church history that are kind of fun, uh, that we prefer. Um, but uh, classical is a bit of a misnomer. But in, in the in the book there, um, and again, these are these are men that I, I highly highly respected and, and learned a great deal from. Uh, they have a, a, a segment where they're talking about um, depravity, and uh, it's in the latter part part that Dr. Gerstner wrote. And, and there he says that um, 
that the mind is not directly affected by sin, uh, but only indirectly affected by sin by way of the heart. Hmm. Now, um, I would suggest and submit that there's no um, parallel uh, of that kind of teaching in Reformed theology at all, and it's, um, it's tantamount to um, uh, less than Reformed way of thinking about our, our intellectual capacity um, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where there's an indirect effect of sin on the mind uh, and a direct effect of sin on the heart. Um, Paul tells us that the mind uh, cannot submit itself to the law of God, neither is it able to do so. That sounds like a direct effect, an inability of the mind to do that. So I think when you get into that kind of thinking that the mind is indirectly affected, I really think you're moving more toward the medieval view of sin rather than a robust reformed view of sin. Yeah, I kind of had the same thought um, uh, it, when I read that particular passage because I think that um, uh, there wouldn't really be a necessity for a, a renewal of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans um, if that were the case. So yeah, that's definitely an absolutely exactly. uh, good word. So moving into the, the practical, um, how can we use covenantal apologetics? I'm trying really hard not to say presuppositional. That's uh, no, <laughs> okay. It's my word. You did not have to be used by everybody. Oh, no, no. I really like it. I really like it. Um, but so how can we use covenantal apologetics in real-world situations, um, talking with our unbelieving uh, friends and family and coworkers? Yeah, um, excellent question. And, and so many things could be, could be said um, a couple, couple of things I would say uh, generally. Um, one is, uh, as, as I've tried to, to say, and, and again, this is uh, the point Ben Tilt tried to make over and over again, um, never leave your foundation um, and really and truly in order to go on to the side of, of the unbeliever and to stand on what they think their foundation is. He, he would say, Ventil would say, if you're going to do that, do that for argument's sake only. In other words, you, you, you go to their side and say, okay, let's say what you're saying is true. Then it seems like X, Y, and Z would follow. But you don't ever want to go onto their side and say, hey, what you're saying is actually true. You know, like, like I was saying Thomas did with, um, with his uh, exposition of Paul at Acts 17. Um, that Paul's on the side of the Greeks and saying, hey, the Greeks got this right. No, he's, he's not doing that at all. So you, so you stand on your foundation, and, and, and a couple of things. One of the things that is uh, probably most difficult for us sometimes as Christians, I know it has been for me, so it's personal confession really, is to, to, uh, to prioritize asking questions. Um, and and what, that, what that does is um, it... it presses people uh, to be more consistent with what it is they say they believe. Um, so, for example, I had a discussion um, with a man um, a few years ago, um, and he, he's not a Christian and knew that I was, and we, we're friends, still are friends, and um, he had just come back from a, a long-distance um, trip that he had been on in this country uh, he'd been in. Uh, he didn't appreciate too much because of its conditions, so he came back, and I asked him how his trip was, and he, he kind of put his finger in my face, and he said, uh, there's no way your God can exist uh, when there's that kind of suffering uh, taking place in, in, the country, in the country he was in. Now, um, we recognize as Christians that um, the, the, uh, the reality of suffering 
in light of God's goodness uh, can be a difficulty for us, the so-called problem of evil. Um, and so, you know, you got you have some options at that point. You can launch into, uh, you know, an exposition, the problem of evil, begin to talk about that, which was tempting. But instead, um, what I did at that point is um, I, I said to him, uh, what makes you think that the God that I believe in is responsible for all of that suffering? Um, and, and I just left that question with him. And, and he kind of looked at me and smirked a little bit. And um, just so happened, uh, within a couple of weeks, he said, um, I want to talk to you about some of this. And we've had some, some discussions about that. So, so the point is, um, ask, you, sometimes you ask the question, and maybe you just let it sit for a while and see what the Holy Spirit's going to do with it. Because you're, you're planting a seed, you're, you're, you're presenting a particular challenge. And, um, you know, my, my, my question to him was just, just meant to, to, to point out, I could have said it different. I could have said it as a statement. I could have said, you know, I could have said, you know, um, when Adam and Eve sinned, they're responsible for the sin that came into the world. Um, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but that doesn't mean that he's responsible for sin because what he ordained is that we are responsible for our sin. And so we're the ones that have ruined the world. God hasn't done that. Um, but, you know, I could have just made that statement, um, set out a few propositions, but instead I just, I left it as a question. So, so when we're, when we're talking with people, I think one of the things we want to try to emphasize is, um, ask questions and, and, um, oftentimes they'll be honest questions, won't they? Because we won't know exactly what people think, uh, are the implications of what they're, they're saying to us. Um, the second thing, uh, that's important to, to recognize, and, and here I think we're, we're back uh, squarely to, um, our reform theology is that, um, we, we want to be able to express the truth of God, which may mean, um, quoting scripture. That's certainly, uh, something we can and should do, but sometimes it just means our, our expression of what scripture teaches without a specific quote, but, but in whatever form. Uh, we want to be able to express the truth of God because we recognize that um, the Spirit of God uses the truth of God to change human hearts. Um, so when, whenever we do that, uh, we're promised in the Bible that the Word of God uh, never returns void to the Lord, and it always accomplishes what He desires. So our goal there is to express the truth. You can look, look again at Paul at Acts 17. Paul's just up there and he is telling these people some very difficult things, but he's describing who God is. And he knows, he knows that God can and did use that truth uh, to change human hearts. So uh, we want to ask questions. We want to co communicate God's truth. And in all of that, we want to listen to the people that we're speaking to so that we can ask the questions that will relate specifically to what they're their issues or problems or objections uh, seem to be at that point. Yeah. Do you think there is a uh, maybe this like knee jerk reaction in Christians to to think that they need to to be able to answer every single question or every single accusation um, perfectly, and maybe that keeps them from being able to, uh, or at least having the courage to start these conversations because they're not really sure where they're going to go. But if they if they use questions a little bit more often, do you think that would be a, a helpful thing? Yeah, exactly, and and that's the reason to use them. I mean, there, nobody, you know, and I and I know people who are in this business, like I'm in this business. None of us who who teach this um, have all the answers to everything and have anticipated all the objections. So you never go into a conversation uh, with the assumption that you, you've got this case and there won't be any any problems or issues here. So that that ought to. 
uh, promote a little bit of humility in us and also um, help us to understand that we're, you know, when we're engaged in this spiritual battle that's taking place in the heavenlies and also taking place here, when we're engaged in this, um, we, we just need to recognize that we're we're talking about people here, and it's not just a battle of ideas. But that's part of it, but um, the, these are our hearts and lives that are um, that are objecting to the God that made them. And so we, we want to be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. And 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 when we think about the fact that we're going into this conversation asking questions, and if we're doing that um, honestly and legitimately. It's going to show a real interest in the person, and it's also going to show that we we are willing to listen to them. We, we want to hear what their objection is and, and why they're objecting to that. And then at some point, uh, we don't just um, stop with questions. At some point, we want to say, now, would you be willing um, for me to, to tell you what I believe and why and, and uh, address some of your uh, issues? And then please feel free to ask me as many questions uh, as you'd like to ask. And we, we've kind of opened the door for that when we started with questions ourselves. So I think we always go into those discussions with humility. Uh, nobody, I don't think, thinks that they've, they've got it all cased. I'm glad that you use the example of evil as well, because I think one of the things that also drew me to uh, presuppositional apologetics uh, was um, that a lot of other apologists whom I love and respect and have learned so much from, um, it seems like they they did a lot of philosophizing when it came to the problem of evil, um, specifically when it comes to um, the adherence to free will um, and uh, and a few other particular arguments for it. Um, so when it comes to the, the problem of evil specifically, how important is it um, to stick with what we know about uh, the problem of evil, um, stick with what Scripture tells us? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the key, isn't it? Uh, we, we don't want to, I don't want to, um, I know some Christians do, but I, I can't. I can't see a way at all to uh, to to allow for for uh, any area of human autonomy such that um, such that my choice is is outside of uh, God's sovereign control in any way, shape, or form. I just don't think um, there's any way that Scripture gives us that kind of leeway. Uh, so so we're into a conundrum. There's no question about it. Um, God is uh, supreme goodness, and and He Himself is holy. And yet um, he's ordained a situation in which um, we had the ability and um, actually took the occasion to ruin his good creation, and, and we're responsible for that. So I think part of what that helps us recognize when we're talking to people uh, is that there's uh, no aspect of God's creation that is uh, ultimately free from him or autonomous with respect to him. That's just not possible. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign. He alone is I am, and the rest of us are utterly and completely image and dependent on him. Uh, but the other thing I think um, that helps us in this uh, is that um, in God's um, plan, perfect plan, and decree in his um, in his determination to do what he's done in creation. Uh, he also determined uh, in eternity past um, that his own son would die uh, to um, 
repair the ruin that we've brought to his creation. So oftentimes we focus the problem of evil on me and my suffering or other people and their suffering. And, um, and we want to acknowledge that suffering is contrary to the character of God. But, but we also have to see that for whatever reason God had in ordaining the world in this particular way, it included him ordaining the suffering of his own son. And that was a suffering, the only suffering that was utterly and completely unjust um, because his son had done nothing wrong. So God ordained um, all things that come to pass, but he also ordained the cross so that the suffering in the world that we experience will one day be finished uh, for those who put their trust in Christ. And, and that takes the problem of evil out of the abstract and puts it right um, smack dab in the middle of the gospel. And I think that's where we've got to go when we're talking about, about the problem of evil. It's not just a problem of evil. It's the problem of suffering that all of us deserve because of the sin uh, that is within us and, and the sin that has ruined God's creation. And God has, um, God has implemented a way um, to stop that sin and to kill even the last enemy, which is death. And he did it by the death of his own son. Yeah. Do you have any uh, parting wisdom for people who are just starting to maybe dip their toe into apologetics? Maybe some things that you wish you knew when you began your journey into apologetics? Um, yeah, you know, um, I think one of the things that, that, um, hit me early on just because of my own, um, understanding of these kind of things is that, um, what is all important in apologetics is not philosophy, but our, but our theology, the mm. way in which we understand the Bible and, and the application of scripture to our defense of Christianity and our communication of the gospel. So I think the first thing to say is that, uh, make sure our apologetics is rooted in and grounded in our theology and is, is utterly and always as, as far as possible with us consistent with our theology. And then if we have to deal with philosophical things, then we try to deal with them if we're able. But but the point of apologetics is is the theological biblical foundation. Um, and then I would say um, I just got this book from a former student of mine. Let me just plug it here. It's called Every Believer Confident. It's uh, apologetics for the ordinary Christian. His name is Mark Farnham. F A R N H A M. Mark's written a really nice book here to try to take some of these things and and help people understand the practicality of it. There's not, there was not that much around like that when I was first um, dipping my toe into this. So, so books like that can be um, immensely helpful, I think, in, in trying to understand these things. Dr. Oliphant, how can people uh, find out more about you or find your work or keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, well, um, I think there's a page on Westminster's website, wts.edu uh, backslash faculty. Um, and I think they, they uh, have a few things uh, listed there that, that, um, that I've, I've published. Um, I guess I would, if I were going to recommend one um, for people who are, have been in this a while, I would say the book Covenantal Apologetics. But if you're just new in this, um, there's another book I wrote fairly recently called Know Why You Believe. Um, and that's meant to try to see how uh, Christianity relates to, uh, they, they set the table of contents for me, Christianity's relationship to science. Why do we believe in, sci uh, in science or how do we think about that? How do we think about the resurrection? 
who Christ is, uh, Christianity is the only way. So it's trying to answer a few of those questions apologetically in a way that's um, relatively uh, simple. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have a list of maybe 86 more questions that I have for you, but uh, I don't know if we'll be able to get all those right now. But uh, I hope to really do this again sometime uh, in the near future. I, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, and uh, answering all the questions that I've already asked. Nice to chat with you. Thanks very much. All right. Well, you have a, a good day and uh, stay healthy. You too. Thanks a lot. Thank you.